Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today we're talking with Charles McBride, who's live in Ukraine, working as an organizer to support getting medical care and resources to the people who need it the most, the civilians. We chat extensively about expectations versus reality of what war looks like and what's going on today in Ukraine. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. So please take a listen and let us know what you think. Charles, thanks so much for coming on. We've chatted quite a bit over the past year or so around uh, various stuff on social media. So it's really cool to have you on and to talk about some of the really important and interesting work you're doing right now. So could you introduce yourself first and uh, we'll go from there? Yeah, absolutely. It's honestly pretty surreal to be on a podcast that I've followed primarily from its meme page. And I'm I'm one one of the followers who has not actually listened to, I would say I've listened to about five or six episodes of the podcast. So I'm one of those ones that you're constantly encouraging to uh, not only follow the meme page, but but also go and check out the podcast. And every time I do, it's very rewarding. But yep, I, uh, I'm Charles McBride. I do not know how to categorize who I am or what I do, to be honest. I live in Los Angeles. I make wildly unpredictable internet content. I'm kind of a freelance um, graphic designer, web designer, social media type consultant, occasionally writer. And yeah, I've dedicated the last four or five years to various kind of nonprofit work which has made me incredibly skeptical of nonprofit work, which is something that we have yep, been there. <laughs> yeah. But I find my, I find it difficult to categorize um, both my kind of ideological commitments and sort of how they affect my day-to-day life. I would say that they are increasingly veering left. I found it comfortable to call myself a social Democrat for a long time. I find it less increasingly less comfortable to do that but I have a deep distrust of kind of authoritarian leftism, which I think has always made me sympathetic towards the anarchist strain. But when you start asking me about anarchist theory, I'm going to, I'm going to stare at you like a deer in the headlights because I, like many anarchists have not read much. <laughs> Fine. It's overrated. Yeah. The reason why I had reached out to you is because you're doing some really interesting work right now. For our audience, could you tell us where you are and that'll kind of springboard the rest of the conversation? Yeah, so I am uh, in a very cozy, very safe, undisclosed location in Ukraine. (laughs) And I've been here for about 15 days now. And I do not actually know when I'm going to be leaving. But I'm here primarily working on a medical project, which I can talk about, which is essentially collecting donated oncology treatments from Europe and shipping them into uh, the city of Kharkiv which is currently besieged by the Russians because they're people who are like languishing in those hospitals and don't have access to oncology treatments, cancer treatments, don't have access to treatments for chronic illnesses. They're people who need insulin. They're people who need thyroid medication, asthma inhalers, that sort of stuff. So these are kind of the secondary and tertiary effects of a war that often grabs the headlines, but usually the victims that are seen are those of the bombing or the shelling or the sniper fire. And you don't see the second and third tier that's kind of the tip of the iceberg. And we like to talk about how the bottom of the iceberg is these people who are, you know, food is going bad in their refrigerator because or because they don't have proper refrigeration. It's overheating. So they need antibiotics um, or, you know, they're running low on their insulin and all the insulins in Europe. Or the person I'm staying with here has a friend who needs their thyroid medication. And then you talk about 
the other aspect of that problem is all those people who left those cities with those conditions who are already refugees and came to places like Lviv looking for for help and and they they don't they, they've been cut off from their their ability to get those life-saving medications so that's what we're trying to do that's one aspect of it. the other aspect is actually getting oncology patients cancer patients out of their wards in cities like Kharkiv and Mariupol and Kherson and to Europe for treatment so to do that we're working with like Columbia University the city of Cologne in Germany and Oxford University and um air raid alarm <laughs> So yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing here. I feel like that was a bit long-winded, sorry. <clears throat> no, that, I mean, what you're doing is complex and is layered because of, like you said, these these are secondary and tertiary issues that people forget exist, that like people with various ailments, will say, still need that constant care. And it's difficult to do that when there are literal bombs raining down nearby and in close proximity or far proximity, disrupting a supply chain and things like that. Compared with what we were talking about before we started recording, a plummeting value of currency. So even if you are able to find it, how are you able to afford those things? Right. Now, thankfully, I mean, Ukraine still has a not-for-profit healthcare system, which is still largely intact. And Europe has been more than generous in this conflict, as has the United States. I was just on my way over here. I stopped because there was a <laughs> an old Volkswagen van that was completely kitted out as like a medical relief van that had been driven from Mainz in Germany. And there's three very German guys and gals uh, hopped out, and they were they had an issue with the with the engine that they were trying to explain to the Ukrainian mechanic. And they asked if I spoke Ukrainian. I said I told them I was the last person they should ask, but I was able to respond in German, which I was proud of. <laughs> and just seeing like seeing them seeing like this girl who drove a medical van from Finland filled with like diapers and hygiene products and stuff like that. And came over the border and didn't even tell her family that she was going to be in Ukraine. All the, all the volunteers who've come from, over, from, from everywhere. And then the fact that the entire like NGO apparatus of the West has been focused on this country. It's amazing to see, and you're seeing the benefits of it. Obviously, that even just saying that brings up the equity problem, which is that when this stuff happens in Yemen or Syria, it's a lot harder to mobilize that level of interest and um, sort of empathy. But I, I mean, there are reasons for that there that are beyond, you know, just strict kind of Western focused or, or racialized um, perspectives. So I think I think Europe feels a kinship with Ukraine geographically and Europe has been very invested in U Ukraine's. Ukraine has kind of done a reverse Britain. Um, Ukraine has been, been very much trying to be a part of the European Union, um, wanting to embrace, you know, open borders and pre-work arrangements and that sort of stuff. Economic development shared on a wider zone rather than being kind of restricted to the Eurasian Russia controlled zone. So, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of patience with people who like anytime Ukraine is brought up, they're just like, well, what about Palestine or what about Yemen? You know, this is like the largest humanitarian crisis that has happened this quickly since the Second World War. There's 10 million internally displaced people within the country. They anticipate about 6 million plus refugees. That happened in, I mean, it took it took what, six, seven years to produce 10 million refugees from the Syrian conflict. It took, it's taken about five weeks to do that in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. The, the scale is astounding. Yeah. 
I think we were chatting before and you'd sent me a map that kind of showed your relations uh, where you were in Ukraine compared to other parts where, you know, you see on the news that bombs are coming down and things like that. And the scale, I think, is largely lost to especially North Americans in particular about like how large of a landmass we're really talking about and how quickly that can turn into like a major population or a, major, a large amount of people having to move very quickly and becoming refugees. Yeah. I mean, there's cities here that are that are being where 90 percent of the buildings have been destroyed. Uh, and these cities are the size of like Miami or Birmingham or or Shreveport or any of these different areas. So it's like people, I don't think people, people think of Ukraine, they think of, you know, a sepia tone filter on a James Bond movie. Yeah. Or like maybe a Call of Duty video game, you know, they think of it as, oh, it's, it's like one of the stands. It's one of these like backward developing Eastern European nations. And uh, in reality, it's massive. Uh, it's a huge nation. It has, I think, the fifth largest uh, military in Europe and second, second largest landmass. I'd believe it behind Poland or Russia. It's it's up there for sure. So yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Well, I, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the work you're doing because I think it's amazing and interesting. I do think it's in many ways kind of a vector into a, a larger conversation, something that you've kind of brought up peripherally at this point, but also I think it's something that we're all experiencing on social media, especially on the left, is navigating the space where there are multiple bad actors and I guess the role of things like propaganda and absolutism that kind of plagues a lot of the conversations around what's going on and what the quote unquote right response is as though there is like an objectively and like pure and like uncomplicated, unproblematic, correct answer that of like what people should be supporting to what's going on in Ukraine. So I know we Again, we had talked a little bit about this in the past, back and forth. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about your thoughts maybe before you showed up and kind of how that's evolved or if it's evolved at all. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I think I, unlike a lot of the people who came over here, I did I did not come come over here out of any like particularly strong feeling towards the Ukrainian government or the military and its struggle and that sort of stuff. You know, Ukraine is a flawed democracy in many ways, similar to the US. It has corruption problem. It has many of the problems that, that plague many developing countries in Eastern Europe. And many of those problems are caused by Russian destabilization. So that's no secret that Russia cannot abide a world in which Ukraine is successful. And having a democracy on their doorstep or even something that resembles a democracy, is very politically dangerous for them. And you're actually even hearing that in reports of soldiers from Russia who come over to Ukraine. And they don't realize, they're told that this is a country of peasants who just need to be brought back into the fold. And they don't realize that these are a fiercely independent people who are developed, you know, they're like, they have better roads than many of the people from these different Russian oblasts they have. They speak more languages, they, you know, they have what we would consider a more European style of, of doing business and um, conducting conducting commerce and, and lawmaking and justice and all that sort of thing. So it's very much an entity that has been struggling with its past and trying to shed itself of its past and define itself by its future. 
Ukraine is a young country as a nation. As a nation, it's younger than my older brother. As an inanimate idea, a reality of its people and its land, it's a far older idea. It's an idea that predates Russia <laughs> in many ways. The homeland of the entire Rus people is in Kiev on the Dnieper River. That is at stake in this conflict. So much of what Russia is trying to do is to eliminate the cultural identity of Ukraine as a people. As someone on the left, I'm very skeptical of nations <laughs> as, as concepts and particularly wary of the kind of sustained Ukrainian nationalism that this conflict is promoting. At the same time, a healthy patriotism is very key to winning this conflict. And I am sure that what Ukraine looks like after this conflict is going to be a lot better than where it was before. So many people have put aside their differences to work together during this period. They have put aside ethnic differences. They have put aside prejudices regarding to geography or language. I think it's important to realize that the fact that all of these people who are fleeing Odessa, Kharkiv, Donbass, kind of Donetsk and Luhansk, and showing up in Western Ukraine in cities like Lviv is the equivalent of like, in the minds of a lot of Western Ukrainians, a lot of Alabama rednecks becoming refugees to Los Angeles or New York or something. Like the cultural differences are that strong. And yet the people of Western Ukraine, the people of Poland have completely opened their arms to these people. And they have they have just been incredibly kind. And it's also it's difficult because many people in Eastern Ukraine speak Russian as their primary language. And that's a huge problem in the country right now is that there's just a lot of suspicion of people speaking Russian. So they're trying to like, because there's that culture war for, for years, you know, the Ukrainian language, even during the Soviet Union was suppressed. It was the language of farmers and peasants. People were told that they were hicks, you know, if they spoke Ukrainian. And so now people who speak Russian are seen as fellow travelers. But that too is being treated with tolerance and love for the most part. And I think in general, people have an identity of themselves. People identify as Ukrainians now more than perhaps any time in the last you know, 300 years, regardless of where you happen to be from within this massive country. Yeah, it seems like it's very much boiling down into that like idea of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. And uh, like there, there's a greater evil, even if we have disagreements. And I think that gives an, a unique opportunity, forcing people to see eye to eye against a common enemy can really kind of break the stigma that wouldn't allow for those conversations to exist. So like you had said, the Ukraine that exists afterwards will be much different because those first opportunities of communication have kind of begun. And that healing process for both sides of the perspectives of Ukrainians has at least started to recognize the humility and humanity of the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. And that's honestly, it's, it's a huge lesson to the rest of the world on kind of the solidarity that a people can feel towards each other and bypassing various political, cultural, linguistic differences. At the same time, there are ugly features of this, which have been covered in the news. There have been reports of Roma people, would have been called gypsies in, in an earlier time, being harassed, occasionally being accused of being looters. And the general attitude towards looters in this country has been incredibly harsh. People taking advantage of the conflict get tied to road signs with tape for like a day. It's just kind of mob justice, you know. So when you have a country with a deep regional distrust of outsiders, 
particularly ones that look different from them um, or speak different languages, then that's going to manifest in ugly ways. As far as I know, much of the reports of like people of color having trouble at the border crossings in the early days were mostly the problems of the host countries not figuring out the visa situation on time and not like actually taking taking the warnings of the Ukrainian government seriously um, that they would need to leave, et cetera. And that was also heavily pushed by the Russian propaganda machine, which is an ever-present conversation or ever ever present point in this because Russia is just the master of twisting, turning anything into a pretense to justify their imperialist expansion in this country. Yeah. That said, to deny or to sweep under the rug some of the uglier elements of things that have happened in this country or even during this war would be uh, not, uh, not honest. Yeah. And that brings up a fundamental thing that I had mentioned at the beginning of this conversation about when we talk about how we perceive what's going on and trying to figure out what's propaganda and what's not, there's this very real concession that needs to be made around how do we wrestle with this type of propaganda when it's so when there's so much that it's basically impossible to know what's actually going on? I don't really have an answer, but I think it's important to at least address the fact that there is this massive propaganda machine. And yeah, I, I almost I can't even find the words for what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? What I just said? No, it does. I mean, so I maintain that the United States probably has the best propaganda of any country. I mean, I think we're we're pretty good at it in terms of like we are better at kind of weaponizing the language around like, oh, freedom and democracy and human rights and that sort of stuff to get our way on the national stage in terms of realpolitik. But I think second only maybe to the United States and perhaps Israel. Actually, Israel might be the best, to be honest. I think Russia is just very good at this because and they especially this region of the world, they really dominate that. And they are incredibly good at taking advantage of the justified discontent of the far left and the far right towards Western liberal democracies and kind of the neoliberal project and allowing them, turning them into effective fellow travelers for Russian imperialism, which I think you and I have probably experienced a lot of in our spaces recently. <laughs> yeah. I imagine that you and I are both awfully disappointed in the left response to this conflict on some levels. I think uh, the level of patience that I had with kind of um, vanguardists with like Marxist Leninist types, that sort of stuff, I think has drastically decreased uh, over the course of the last couple of months between just massively standing Russian imperialism and constantly making excuses for it and that sort of stuff, completely misidentifying who the victim in the situation is and being silent about a humanitarian crisis that is unfolding here is just simply unacceptable. I think it betrays every principle of solidarity. And at the same time, I think there's a lot of people who grasp that nuance and who understand that they can disagree with Zelensky, they can disagree with the Ukrainian government. They can admit that Ukraine is often used as an arm of U.S. imperialism and yet still realize that on a relative scale, they are the victim in this conflict and they deserve our support. And if not in the form of tanks and missiles, then at least in the form of food aid, medicines, hygiene products, anything that we can do to help relocation of people. Yeah. Because I can guarantee you that the 10 million internally displaced people here are not fascist sympathizing neo-nazis <laughs> yeah 
Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. I'm going to get to the point you just made, but uh, you brought up originally this idea of the United States, Israel, and Russia being the best at building this propaganda machine. And what I really think is interesting is that the Russian response around propaganda isn't about self-promotion the way the United States is. It's about subverting self-promotion. And I think that can be inherently something as like, especially like on the left or anarchists in particular, that are like distrustful of anything, any major structure. It's very easy to kind of get swept into the, well, I'm against the United States, so therefore this must be true. And that can be a really dangerous game. It is really interesting that they've learned to weaponize that so well where it's not pro-Russian propaganda, it's just anti-American propaganda. That's a much easier pill for people to digest. It's much harder to come up at an argument against that than it would be to like be, oh, look at all these great things that Russia does. There's not a lot of propaganda around that. And they kind of use that that vacuum to make their moves, which is uh, an interesting play that's worked really well for them. The second piece that you brought up around like how the left has failed in many ways around this conversation is really, I think, the crux of not to diminish the lived experiences of the Ukrainians, but as this war, whatever we end up calling it and moving forward, unfolds, this is something that's going to happen more as climate change accelerates and as capitalism clearly is starting to slowly eat itself. These types of wars are going to continue to exist. And we as a whole have to figure out how we're going to navigate that space and what are we going to do in terms of recognizing that there are two bad actors or three bad actors or four bad actors and applying some understanding of that there's some gray area and that the United States might, you know, if we look at like Rojava, the United States has done many terrible things, but they've supported Rojava for their own selfish reasons. Right. And that's not a bad thing. And the same thing like with Ukraine, where we can acknowledge that there are bad actors that are doing things that are self-preservation But that doesn't necessarily mean that act is bad because it's doing good things, even if that's not the intent. Yeah. It's interesting you brought up the Rojava because I I think that that's such an interesting correlation to this conflict, which maybe we should have seen part of this coming. It is a similar situation in which, yes, the United States is supporting Ukraine, um, but the circumstances are very similar to Rojava. And I think it's very interesting that, like, you know... (laughs) In the States, we're, or maybe the Western left, I would say in general, is very obsessed with ideological purity from a distance. And they're obsessed with cultivating the exact right perspective on every conflict, on every figure, on every institution. And these are the types of things that just fall apart when you're in an active conflict zone. For instance, in the case of the Rojava, 
I mean, the Road Java, have, <laughs> the YPG, these guys have done more to to enact actual anarchist spaces like in the real world than pretty much any leftists in the West. And yet they will still kiss the boots of the 101st Airborne because the 101st Airborne is really helping them fight the Syrians <laughs> and fight ISIS and that sort of stuff. And that's why they have parades for them. And whenever the Americans come, they're very excited to see them because they know that they bring weapons. Yeah. And it's the same thing here in Ukraine. You, this place is the death of ideology. You have anarchists, you know, you have left-leaning people singing songs about Stepan Bandera, who was a very problematic historical figure worth a Google. You have Rev Dia, you know, the anarchist contingent here fighting alongside members of the Azov Battalion to like fight off Russian incursions into Donbass, into Mariupol, into Kherson. You have Jewish members of Azov Battalion because they were just fighting in Mariupol and ended up getting embedded with Azov because they were the only people who had weapons and stuff. And so they're all, the Jews are now fighting alongside neo-Nazis against the Russians. Like, it's just very complicated here. And it really just does boil down to there's an imperialist power trying to wipe out the national, cultural, popular, democratic identity of a people that is very old. And ideological bickering is being set aside in the face of this imminent threat. And it's kind of cool to see. Yeah. At the same time, I can guarantee you Rev Dia and Azov's alliance isn't going to last very long. And once this is over, um, they'll they'll probably go back to fighting each other. Yeah. And it raises a really interesting, uh, like I like the comparison to Rojava for a lot of the reasons you do. But one of the things that we haven't seen yet with Ukraine, which I'm curious to see if we do, is the fact that, the, in my humble like opinion, I, I feel like with Rojava and uh, uh, the Zapatista EZLN, part of the reason they've been so successful is their PR campaigns. Right. And the fact that they've done a really, really good job painting the narrative that they want the rest of the world to see. Yeah. And there's a bunch of different ways they've done that. That's probably a conversation on its own, but we haven't seen it yet with Ukraine. And I, I'm not sure if we will because of the fact that it is a formalized country and it, it makes things a little bit more difficult. But um, talked about the fact there is this very structured, explicit Russian propaganda machine. The U.S. is running its own propaganda, but... That propaganda is something that I think folks like ourselves quickly dismiss for a lot of reasons, and that doesn't really provide a healthy alternative, that, or at least one that I've seen yet. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see how the propaganda machine itself kind of plays this out. Yeah, and I, th I also think it's important to realize, and something I've really realized on the ground here, is that Ukrainians are like quite, they're not, they're not cynical about this, but they're quite realistic about like, like, there's not a lot of NATO simping going on in Ukraine right now. They're like, <laughs> is NATO going to help us? Yes? No? No? Okay, well, fuck them. We're going to go do our thing. Like, we'll beat Russia by ourselves. Whatever. If they can send us some guns, that's fine. But you know what? Fuck NATO. We don't care. When people, when I tell people I'm an American, they're like, oh, can you send us thermal scopes? You're like talking to like a 20-year-old girl in the square. You know, she's like all made <laughs> up and everything. And you know, she's like hopping out of a nail salon. She's like, yeah, when are you guys going to send us more thermal scopes? And it's just like, hold on. I don't, 
I don't do that. That's like <laughs> I'm not the government. Yeah, <laughs> I can't. Just a guy. Yeah. So they're they're not like, you know. It, it, I think they have at least the people in Ukraine and in many of the the soldiers I've talked to are like, look, if you guys want to be useful, feel free to be useful, but we're not we're not mortgaging the future of our country on the chance that like the U.S. or NATO decide that we're a horse worth betting on. Yeah, that's it's interesting. I want to circle back to the first question I had when we started talking about Ukraine and how has your experience there kind of, well, has it changed the way you've, you understand what's going on there and if it has, how so? Yeah, I definitely like, like I said, I said, I, I think I, I came in, I, I certainly wasn't neutral to the conflict. I knew Russia was the aggressor. I had a nuanced appreciation of kind of the actors and like everything that was going on. I have felt like being here, it's more complicated. It's just like six months ago, I wish would have wished the death of, death of the Azov Battalion in a heartbeat. But now I have friends who are fighting alongside them in Mariupol. And if Azov dies, they die. And it's like never in my life, certainly not in the past couple of years, with my leftward drift, would I have considered me hoping that like members of a battalion in which 15 to 20 percent of the members are active neo-Nazis does not get wiped off the face of the earth by grad rockets is like weird to me. Yeah. Like, I'm, Good. you know, and it's complicated because then if they win or if this is like a Helm's Deep situation or Thermopylae, either way, the Azov Battalion is now going to be lionized and canonized as these like heroes of Ukraine, at least in the minds of the population. I mean, Ukrainians are storytellers. Every bar that I've gone into, every restaurant I've visited, it's got Ukrainians playing folk music, creating folk music about this conflict, making songs about Bayraktars, making songs about in-laws, you know, making songs about different divisions and fighting different, um, you know, the people on Snake Island or everyone here is wearing shirts with that phrase, fuck you, go fuck yourself, Russian warship. Like there is myth making in process. And I worry that like whatever happens with Azov and Mariupol, they're going to be lionized. <laughs> in some fashion, either as the brave defenders like at Helm's Deep who held off the Russians or like those who sacrificed and they were the martyrs of Ukraine, you know, who died like the Spartans at Thermopylae to give Ukraine another shot. So like, that's annoying. <laughs> yeah. But at the same yeah. time, like, I, I can't, you know, there's, there's no situation in which like, there's not going to be massive Azov stands coming out of this. And again, like, like I said, it's complicated. There are Jews fighting inside of Azov. Yeah. Just because it's the most convenient unit of the National Guard to be fighting alongside right now. Yeah. But you're right. It's a huge branding problem. And it is a branding problem that Putin has been very willing to exploit. Yeah. Even though he's literally sponsoring neo-Nazi divisions in Donbass. I want to circle this conversation back to, I think, something where we have a lot more overlap than I, th well, I, I don't want to say more overlap than we would be willing to admit because I think folks listening to this probably are familiar with the fact that neo-Nazis are infiltrated our military and our police and things like that. And I'm really interested in this experience and how the wars we fight internationally always come home. That's ine an inevitability that what our military does overseas eventually will make its way home. And we've started seeing that already here. And what we're seeing in the Ukraine, I think, offers us a glimpse into what if civil war or some kind of war broke out on American soil, that many of the trained, organized 
military, what would we actually see if we have these like neo-Nazis that are anti-big government lining up against a foreign power or even an internal power? And how, how would they get valorized and things like that? It offers us some really interesting parallels that I think we definitely need to think about and to be aware of. And in that process, I think would better prepare us for what our future might look like. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I do. Yeah. I'm going to, this is going to be a really meandering answer to this question, but I'm going to start with. It was, it was a really meandering question, so it's fine. <laughs> I'm going to start with one of the things that makes the Azov Battalion slightly unique in terms of far right organizations, which is their capability in foreign recruitment. So one of the things that Azov does very well is because it's basically existed entirely in an active war zone. They've been fighting in Donbass since uh, 2014. They have been really successful in recruiting the neo-Nazi international. Like they will recruit guys from the base. They will recruit guys from other far-right networks from Slovakia and the Czech Republic, from New Zealand and Australia and the UK and France. And these guys go there to Donbass and they get embedded with a a more or less a far-right, a far-right group. I don't like calling them officially neo-Nazis because like 15 to 25% of, of them are actually neo-Nazis. But again, you know, like if you're embedded with that unit, it's very far right. It's terrible branding, that sort of stuff. And so they're going over there and they're getting training in NATO tactics with NATO weapons and they're fighting a real you know, organized military. And one of my concerns in this conflict was that all these, all these cowboys coming over from the U.S., we're going to be doing that sort of thing. And I, I really thought that there was going to be a lot more far-right white supremacist guys coming over here. And I think actually one of the things that helped that not be the case is that so many of them have been subject to Russian propaganda and they're actually very pro-Putin. So that's, that's been kind of one of the saviors of this conflict is that a lot of like the chuckle fucks that you would expect to show up and then get like training with a bunch of NATO weapons and tactics and, and, and fight a real enemy and then go back to the US with that knowledge. They just like ended up on the wrong side of this thing. <laughs> and, and so they didn't come over. Most of the guys that I met coming out here are like the type of people who would have gone to fight in Spain on the side of the Republicans. And then like very angry divorced men with military backgrounds, that sort of thing. Yeah, low-key want to die. Yeah, there's people coming out here because they have a death wish. There's people coming out here because they feel like this is the front lines of the fight against fascism. There's people who are coming out here because they believe this is on the front lines of the fight for fascism. <laughs> and those are that's, a, that's, that's very much a minority. But uh, in general, I've been impressed with the guys who've come out here. I also think it's, it's, it's important to point out that like there's a lot of foreigners dying in Ukraine. The casualties... For the, for the Territorial Defense Force and the kind of foreign legion are estimated to be about one in three. So, you know, a third of the guys coming over here are, are dying. And they're dying oftentimes before they can even get to the battlefield. This first day I was here, I heard a story, a recent story about a bus convoy taking foreign volunteers from the U.S., Canada, France to the front, and uh, they got ambushed, all 200 of them killed by the Russians before they even saw any fighting. And, you know, that's just tragic. There's just a million stories like that happening. And, and those are the ones that are happening to people who volunteered to be in the war zone. Then there's others who just the war zone came to them. I have a friend here who's 
who's showing me videos of like her house in I forget the tiny town. It's north. It's northeast of Kiev. It's a town I couldn't pronounce anyway. But and it's just this idyllic little like Hobbit village, and there's this beautiful blue church. And the second night of fighting, the Russians came through and basically burned the church to the ground. Uh, it was the church she was baptized in, and she was showing me photos of Ukrainians and Russians having a fight in like her backyard. Those types of people, they just they didn't ask for any of this, you know. They're not like disaffected veterans coming over here to get a piece of the action. They're just caught in the middle of this. They don't have ideological convictions. They just want to go back to their home. They want to go back to their farms. You know, they want to like pickle stuff and make borscht and, you know, and have, have children, have grandchildren. And yeah. I feel like I'm a, I'm a centralizing Ukrainian identity, but everyone here has been talking to me about how they pickle stuff and make borscht. And they've been very proud of that. So <laughs> I'm going to say that that's what they do well. Yeah, it's Ukrainian approved. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I think that's you know one of those unfortunate realities about war is that a lot of people, a war uh, has a toll on entire populations when small percentages of those populations have the convictions that necessitate said war. And that's something that you see play out like what you're talking about. Who said the uh, in war, the first victim is always the truth. Was that Winston Churchill? I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I mean, that's just very much the case, you know. Yeah. Russians are filming videos of their soldiers dressed as Ukrainians committing war crimes. Ukrainian soldiers are committing war crimes and not owning up to them. Russian soldiers started out with war crimes. Guys in the Defense Force are telling me that early on, the Ukrainians were being very gentle with the prisoners and everything. And then a month later, that they're all in. They just, when there's a combat engagement, they just, they don't leave too many prisoners. Yeah. This stuff is just messy, man. Like nobody's getting out of this. Nobody's getting out of this with their ideological convictions intact. I gave my first aid kit to a bunch of dumb Spanish reporters. Well, they weren't dumb. They just should have should not have shown up to a war zone with the kind of kit that they had. I gave like my my IFAG, my my first aid kit to them. I gave my last tourniquet to a Polish reporter for a newspaper that I would probably never read. <laughs> Because it's, it's pretty pro, um, it's pretty pro law and justice party, pro Duda, pro um, Moraviski, and <laughs> I, I gave him a tourniquet because he was headed towards Kiev, and he sent me pictures the entire time, being like, "Hey, I'm in Kiev," and you know, like, "I'm fine, I'm I'm on the train, and you know, I'm here, here I am next to a, a hedgehog, here I am next to all this sort of stuff." He's like, "Oh, I got arrested by the Ukrainians," <laughs> and you know, and I'm invested in this guy. I know, right? Like he's yeah. he's there. He's someone I care about. Um, I don't agree with him on much. Probably don't agree with most of these people on much. But it's just you make friends quickly here, and due to the circumstances, making friends under the air raid sirens is a different kind of relationship. <laughs> it's a messy situation, and I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how things play out in the future in these places, and um, kind of what what the rippling effects are from these relationships. It gives me cautious optimism. I'll say that. Charles, anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to uh, discuss a little bit? Just that there is, there is some, if we're going to divorcing ourselves from the conversation of Ukraine, I think what you're doing, the project that you're doing is very interesting and very cool. And there's just a lot of overlap with like recent interests of mine that don't involve randomly flying to war zones and running medical projects. I figured that's all you did. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, a new thing. That's that's a, that's a new thing. That's 22, 2022 me. <laughs> but 
But for the past two years, I've been working with an organization called the FarmLink Project, which rescues food that's going to waste on farms and brings it to uh, food banks that that are kind of running low. And um, and we're trying to incorporate principles of sound ecology and um, self-sufficiency and that sort of stuff into that process. So it's not just kind of a band-aid solution on on a supply chain problem. And that has given me a weird appreciation and love for, you know, agriculture, for gardening um, and that sort of thing. And I've recently started working at a community garden and I show up there like every weekend, you know, when I'm back in California. And I feel like through FarmLink, I, that was one of the ways that I sort of got into kind of the green anarchist side of things. And uh, yeah, your podcast was just kind of there. It's always there. I think the project that you're doing is incredibly valuable because I think people, again, I think people like to sit in their ideological covens and then not think about what it takes for their their ideas to meet the real world. And I think that you're one of those people who does, and you're you're living out your your convictions in a very very cool way. Oh, thank you. That's literally just five minutes of flattering, but um. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I will not say no to it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been an interesting process. I, I think probably like what you're experiencing in Ukraine, not to say running a podcast is the same as being in a war zone by any means, but I think when you put yourself out there in a, a public capacity at the whim of other people, that vulnerability forces you to to really uh, introspectively look at what you're what you believe in if it's founded in reality and and putting it in reality and letting it allowing it to be dissected in different ways by your experiences talking with other people is both humbling and really important for growth, not just for yourself, but the people around you that are also navigating these very weird times that we live in. Yeah. No, you got to have like, I think going back to something you mentioned earlier, which I didn't get a chance to touch on really, there's going to be a lot more opportunities to test the metal of people on the left (laughs) in terms of where their ideological convictions meet the horrific reality of a refugee crisis or an imperial war or a resource war or a drought or a famine or, or a refugee crisis or a, you know, all of these things. And this is, you know, I think, you know, you and I have talked about cool zone media. I think their project is really valuable from this standpoint of it, like, I'm in a place where it has happened, <laughs> you know? It, yeah. Yeah. It's very it, true. It, it, it can happen here. It can happen anywhere. And seeing the way that people are now surviving when they lack medicine, when they're subject to airstrikes, when they're not sure where meals or lodging or transportation is going to come from. And then just realizing that all of us are a lot closer to that than we think. And we need to build resiliency. We need to build community. It's really important. Yeah. We did an episode about a year and a half ago now on the troubles in Ireland Mm -hmm. and how that would like uh, taking that data, the percentages of people involved per capita and things like that and applying it to the United States and you realize how staggering it is. And I think that's the part that gets lost is how if something were to go down in the US, the squabbles we see in smaller countries grow very quickly because of the density of the places we live. And that doesn't take into and, account and the fact that we have about 40% of the private firearms in the world. <laughs> yeah. And that and the fact that our food systems are much more uh, linear than in most places of the world, even 40 years ago, like when we're talking about like the troubles. And that just compounds the conversations that we're talking about 
the stability, the logistics, and those conditions lead to radicalization one way or the other. Yeah. You're asking for something to pop off real quick when you start mixing all those things together. So I, I think what you're doing is really great to get your hands involved and dirty and willing to put yourself out there and see see what's actually happening and to do your part. It's really cool. And I'm happy to see that you're willing to put yourself out there and to talk about it. Thanks, man. Well, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of the pod and I, I really appreciate you having me on and being willing to hear my perspective on all this. Charles, before I let you go, what are your social medias and all that good stuff? Oh, Christ. Um, <laughs> if you really want to, you can follow me on TikTok and Instagram, Charles McBride with a Y, uh, not an I. And I'm on Twitter as well. And yeah, I would love, I guess by the time this drops, our medical aid project will be live and accepting donations for the getting the oncology medicines to Kharkiv. So if people are interested in donating to that, they'll probably find those links on my social media pages. Yeah. And I'll plug them in the episode notes. So if you're listening to this, it should be like right below wherever you hit play. Awesome, man. Charles, thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah.